It's the Underpowered Hour on this week's show, Morgan Plus 4 CXT, Britain's top model, the Land Rover Series 188 and 109, Land Rover Controversy, a tip-top tech tip, and famous Land Rover Owner of the Week. And now, here's the show. Welcome to the Underpowered Hour. I'm Stephen Barris, mild-mannered television executive by day and Land Rover collector by night. You can find out more about my cars and what we're working on at thebarriscollection.com or check us out on Instagram at the Barris Collection. I'm joined, as always, by my good friend, Ike Goss. Thank you to everyone joining us today. I'm the hammer rivet to Stephen's pop rivet, the no-power steering of podcasting, Ike Goss. I own and operate Pangolin 4x4 in Springfield, Oregon, where we live and breathe Land Rovers. Check us out online on Facebook, Instagram, at Pangolin 4x4. Let's get started. All right, Ike. Now now it's official. I have to start every podcast with All Right, Ike. I'm going to yeah. start working on the sticker. I'm going to get All Right, Ike stickers. <laughs> I can't wait. I'm gonna, we're really on the stickers. We're, we're working on a secret collaboration on stickers, by the way, dear audience. But um, can't talk about it yet. But let me just tell you, it's going to be amazing. I'm so excited about it. It's one of the most exciting so things. One of the most exciting things this year, for sure. The internet has little uh, has little going on this year, but let me tell you, these stickers, uh, there may be glitter. There may be glitter involved. I don't want to. I don't want to spoil anything, but you know, that's <laughs> going to be pretty good. Speaking speaking of the internet, a, a glitter. Um, I don't know if you noticed the new uh, CXT. Uh, Ike, I know you're a big fan of CXTs uh, in general. This one, though, this one, not the international CXT, which I know is, uh, you know, a, a subject of, of your CXT fan club and separate podcast about <laughs> the international CXT, but the Morgan Plus Four CXT. Have you ever wanted to go off-roading uh, in Cruella DeVille's gentleman's car? This is the, this is the off-road Zimmer. It's, you know, it's, <laughs> it's not for Zimmer. I love it. I want it so bad. I can't even describe it to you. I don't know why. Because no like, one does. No one no does. One. It's not, it's not probably good, that good off road. It's probably not that good on road. It's probably just a lot of fun. Yeah. And that's okay too. That's okay too. My brother sent me a link to, you know, uh, like rally prepped CXT. And I had in my mind the international giant douche mobile pickup truck. Oh, yeah. And, it is uh, all douche all the time. And for those of you who haven't <laughs> seen an international CXT, imagine if you were to take like a, a Kenworth uh, truck, you know, a, a, a tractor uh, for a tractor trailer uh, setup, and you just put it like a, a giant size pickup truck bed on the back. Yeah. And all you can haul around uh, in it, uh, I guess, is, uh, you know, I don't know kegs of Budweiser. I'm not sure you, what you, you would can't do even do that. You can't even do that because the bed height is so high. You can't really lift anything into it without a forklift. Couldn't do it. And it has to the, be forklifted. The in. hitch height is too high to like really tow anything without an extension that would be, 
you know, inappropriate for the amount of weight that this vehicle can tow. So point. it's it's really useless. And speaking of useless, the the Morgan is kind of uh, you know similarly blended. It's like mm-hmm. a a rally car and this like British sports car that's very traditional. So it has like dual spare tires and a yeah. tiny little shovel. By the way, one of the things that I is is kind of a pet peeve for me is the the comically small shovel that is attached to every Porsche <laughs> that's rally prepared or every Morgan yeah. that's rally prepared yeah. or or the other day I saw a, a lifted expedition sprinter van oh, with, yeah. with the most miniature tactical shovel mounted to the front bumper. A it was child's like, garden spade. Ah, yeah. It was like something you'd see a kid you make a sandcastle with at the yeah. beach. It yeah. was it was that small. I, I I'm not exaggerating. It couldn't have been more than 18 inches long. It was just it was comically small. I, I have to say, I thought the same thing about the Morgan. Any chance of bringing anything with you has been uh, decimated by the tires. And now there are little, there's like little cargo containers that, that go on the side. It's for racing. There's, it is for racing. You know, Even you though know, it doesn't meet any specification for any Yeah, it's just for racing. Race. I guess it's just for racing the, the I don't know, other Morgan owners. Now, I, I heard, and I don't know where I heard this, <laughs> but I heard that they're only making eight of them, which I guess makes sense. Now, this car is about, apparently, $237,000, which is a, a lot, even it's a for a Morgan. Yeah, it's a great deal. The Morgans are, yeah, you know, actually not that, uh, the plus fours in general, not, not as expensive as you would think and like insanely customizable. They yeah. have like a customizing tool on their website where you can go and just spend days clicking around and different, tra- I mean, you can decide a different like kind of trim around the seat versus the stitching on the seat versus the seat itself versus the gentleman that assembles the seat for you. I don't want Carl. I don't want Carl to build that seat. Carl's terrible. I'll tell you what. Carl on a Tuesday, (laughs) you might as well not even get the seat, you know? That guy does shit work. You get like, you get, you get Oliver on like a Thursday afternoon after, after a big soccer match win. Those are primo seats. And you can you can specify that level of detail. Like they'll it's go deep. pretty amazing. Yeah, I have a customer that's really into the Morgans, and and he gets a couple per year, and uh, they are amazing cars. And it's really amazing that that sort of vehicle and the way that those are made that still exists. It's cool. Yeah, yeah and Nick, uh, our good friend Nick Dimbleby, has done the photo uh, One of shoot. my favorite people, Nick Dimbleby. Not only the nicest gentleman in the world, but one of the most eclectic when it comes to the type of work that he does. I mean, he, if, if it has wheels, seemingly he's photographed it, and in the most insane way possible, right? I mean, like, the footage of this little Morgan, you know, rock crawling and screaming around corners and all that, it's really, it looks like the most fun to be had uh, it was the promotional photo shoot for the he Morgan. To, it's all he downhill He gets to watch there. a lot of people have fun. <laughs> That's a good point. You're right. That's a good point. From a, from a, from a respectable distance. It's but uh, if you don't follow him on Instagram, check him out at uh, Nick Dimbleby and a uh, wonderful automotive photographer. He can take the uh you know the scabbiest looking car on the cloudiest day and really make it look like a show winner it's uh, it's really impressive to watch him work um, i've seen some uh, i've seen some i 
Goss uh, glamour shots that Nick has done, and they are, uh, <laughs> I mean, they're tasteful, they're elegant, uh, you know, it's it's great. Uh, Nick's series of Ike nudes are some of the some of his best work, definitely. A little harder to find that on the Instagram. Those, but, those uh, were for your eyes only. Oh, I see. Oh, my. Oh, my. All right. Well, on that, so uh, on that note, uh, so Britain's top model for this uh, for this week, yes. like, kind of an interesting, kind of an interesting piece. We're actually, funny enough, just doing a little bit of uh, of a series one, uh, where does this place, where does this piece go and what does that make it uh, math just a moment ago looking at a photo uh, for something that will come up a little later in the show. But uh, today uh, we want to talk about the Land Rover series one, which you and I are huge fans of, uh, but something that's a, maybe a little bit, a little bit smaller, a little bit uh, tinier chunk of the subsection of greater uh, Land Rover series one's conversation. What Land Rover Series 1s, would you like to talk about uh, today, Ike? So one of my favorite Land Rover Series 1s, beside the 80-inch, which is kind of the original format, you know, there's a lot of, there's a little bit of variation within the Series 1s. And then you start to get a little bit more variation with the, you know, the later Series 1s. Starting in 1954, you get the the 86 and the 107, you know, the, the pickup truck and the station wagon. Mm-hmm. Those, uh, you know, really extended the offerings that Land Rover was providing at that time. And you can really see the the success of Land Rover in those vehicles because mm-hmm. they're really pushing the development. You know, um, they're adding engines, they're adding more power, they're adding uh, accessories, you know, they're adding all, all these things, tops, roofs, uh, station wagons, you know, all these variants. And you can see that, uh, you know, Land Rover is not only... Um, you know, investing in the vehicles, they're investing in the engineering, they're investing in the technical literature, you know, at this time, it's kind of like the golden era yeah. of Land Rover yeah. through, uh, you know, I would say about 1963-ish, mm-hmm. 64-ish. And then it's kind of like, you know, from 1964 to like, you know, uh, 84. Some would say 2016. <laughs> yeah. Some would say 2016 I, I, and really 84, you know, the engine yeah. offerings, transmission offerings, they're pretty much the same, pretty stagnant. Now they're investing in the Range Rover at that mm-hmm. time, but mm-hmm. you really don't see the development of the utility models past, you know, 1964 in any real meaningful way. And so I think that's for me, the, the, you know, the golden age of Land Rovers and, and when they're really developing and improving the vehicles. And so the series one eighty eight and one Oh nine, I think are personally my favorites because they, they really start to improve things and, and listen to people who are complaining about various problems with the cars and make those improvements. And so, you know, the 86 and 107, they're very cool vehicles. And yeah. the 88 and 109 don't differ too tremendously. You know, they look basically the same. But mm-hmm. technically, they've got some real important improvements that make them a better driving vehicle, better to own vehicle. And that's why I like them, because they have that classic Series 1 styling. But they're just, you know, the steering box is better. The engine mountings are improved. They have a diesel option. And the diesel option was a big deal for Land Rover. That was huge at the time. You know, the two-liter diesel, really the first company to really embrace diesel technology. You could get engine conversions, like you could buy a Jeep and have uh, an engine installed in your Jeep. You know, I think uh, 
Centec or Centaur. Mm-hmm. I can't remember mm-hmm. the name mm-hmm. of the diesel, but it's a three cylinder yeah. that you could be you could put in your Jeep new. And then Turner, you know, offered mm-hmm. diesel conversions and advertised them. But really, as a company to embrace diesel technology uh, and and make the vehicle accept the diesel engine. That's the whole reason for the wheelbase change is really to accommodate that diesel. And that architecture carried through and that engine design carried through the two and a quarter, uh, both gas and diesel, two and a half, 200 TDI, 300 TDI and 2.8 TGV. They're all based on that architecture of the, the two liter diesel from 19. 56. Yeah, believe which it is or amazing. Not. Well, you think they found 88 and 109 inches and stuck with that basically up through the Land Rover 90 and 110. I mean, it was it was it was sort of the magic number for the, you know, for the for basically the majority of the series Land Rover's existence, those two wheelbases became the the sort of standard. So it's uh, you know, they sort of they sort of were very iterative in the early parts of the series 1, kind of making it a little bit longer and and sort of but then once it once it sort of settled on that and and went to series 2, it was that way all the way through you know, the end of the series uh, trucks when the, you know, when the, the Land Rover 90. Even the 110 is like yeah, 109 and three quarters or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. it's like really yeah. similar. So, and obviously you look at the, you look at the 107 wagon and the 110 wagon and the proportions are awfully damn similar. You know, the layout of the interiors, you know, all of that was designed at this time. And uh, that's why I really like it. The 107 wagon, which we should probably have another Britain's top model about, yeah. you know, it has, you know, the seats fold out into a bed and all the door tops come up. They have a really, a lot of really cool features, but the 88 and 109 series ones, you know, they represent, uh, you know, some, I would say incremental improvements. You know, the, the body is relatively the same. Only yeah. difference is the, you know, the fenders and the hood are slightly different. The doors and the, the tub and the, the all the bulkhead, that's all really similar. Similar, but you know you can notice things about that car. You know the bulkheads on the '86 and 107s. They have cracks that propagate from the transmission tunnel area, kind of up and over the footwells. Mm-hmm. And the '88 and 109s have a really nice pressed reinforcement there, mm-hmm. and it makes the steering more rigid. It makes a lot of things uh, more rigid on the car, mm-hmm. and so I like it for that reason. The steering box is a huge thing. Yeah. You know, having an adjustable steering box. Mm-hmm. You know, with your 80 inch series one that. Yes. The steering isn't adjustable. Yeah, the box isn't adjustable, so it wears, and then you can't really adjust the playout, the worm and nut arrangement. And the only yeah, the only way to do it is to sort of uh, replace, either completely rebuild it or just replace the steering box, and those are very few uh, and far between. Uh, speaking of of steering boxes, uh, Ike, I know we haven't uh, we haven't checked in on the great uh, stage one steering box removal project Ooh, uh, in, in a moment, but I thought, well, I thought I'd give you an update that uh, you know, as we said. Uh, on uh, last week's show that, uh, you know, it was getting a little tricky to get the steering wheel off. It had, uh, it had welded itself in there. Uh, well, in fact, it, it was tricky to get the steering wheel <laughs> off and uh, uh, finally ended up having to sawzall the steering wheel out of the car, which I think uh, that's the factory. That's the factory uh, method of removal. You there's know, the guy, you... the little guy in the series one manual, you know, trying to change it. The guy with the sawzall uh, sawing through the steering column of his uh, Land Rover. It's yeah. Totally normal. Totally yeah. normal. Yeah, totally normal. But hey, you know what? That steering wheel is out and uh, did manage to salvage the steering wheel. Um, and the uh, 
you know, the the steering shaft will will never be the same. It's now a, a more convenient two part uh, steering shaft. Uh, just a small amount of welding necessary to once again make it a again know. totally normal. I think that's yeah. the actual adjustment of the steering wheel position is to cut and re weld it so you can get <laughs> the tilt. spokes that's to how be you straight. Do the tilt. Yeah, exactly. It's the <laughs> tilt steering. Uh, so now you can have it at any angle you want. So uh, anyways, on the uh, underpowered hour used parts website, uh, feel free to drop in and get a uh, new adjustable, self-adjustable. You just weld it to whatever position you want. And uh, you can Google that at stevensjunk.com. <laughs> stevensjunk.com. <laughs> the, the source for all uh, old, weird Land Rover uh, stuff. Yeah, we got nonstop, nonstop junk. So anyways, the car now steers properly and uh, although a little tight, I'm going to loosen it a little bit. It's a little tight, but uh, it is it is steering, which is uh, which is somewhat novel considering uh, this sort of more vague suggestion that the steering wheel was making up to this point. It's now uh, a much more uh, definite uh, instructions to turn uh, the car, which is always uh, which is always uh, a good feeling. Uh, speaking of upgrades uh, that you can make to your Land Rover, like making it able to be controlled when driving, um, we had a, a good friend, good friend of ours, listener to the show, um, uh, Brad Haley. I actually invited Brad to come on and talk on the show, and he said, no, I'm I'm not interested. So, which is to be fair, that's <laughs> that is this response that is appropriate, I think. I but he would, did say he did say, you know, what would be interesting is uh, the 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 pros and cons, the positives, uh, negatives, the uh, the goods, the bads uh, about uh, traditional springs, traditional springs, yeah, versus a parabolic spring in a new segment we're calling Land Rover controversy <laughs> i like it yeah, yeah this is a question that everyone asks and yeah. uh you know there's there's a, a lot of perspectives about the springs and um you know i'm i'm personally a little conflicted about them for a number yeah. of reasons but as the, am i yeah. you know the semi-elliptic springs when you look at the parts catalog there's like 300 different springs you know <laughs> yes. they're they're all different for yeah. different models the short wheelbase the long wheelbase the gas the diesel yeah. Yeah. the right hand side the left hand side you know the springs were handed yep. so you have four different springs on every car and yep. that could be gas or diesel or a station wagon or you know what have you so there's there's a lot of variations in the springs and so you know for most people that's that's kind of confusing first off cuz maybe mm -hmm. their car has been altered or changed and second of all you know it's hard to find a company that makes really good quality springs you you know mm -hmm. genuine land rover springs are are not always available in the the sizes or lengths or whatever that you need and most yeah. cases they aren't um and so that's a problem you know the springs are all really old you yep. know they're all 60 years old at this point and most of them have not been maintained it's very odd to see a car that has the the leaf springs lubricated or the bushings mm -hmm. replaced or these mm -hmm. sorts of things so normally you know, the old springs have bad bushings and a lot of times they've been sitting. And so the, the springs are not moving. They're rusted yeah. together, yeah. especially it's in terrible. Eastern climates. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they're even spreading or broken. Mm -hmm. And so 
oftentimes people are like, okay, what do I do? And uh, a popular answer is let, you know, put parabolic springs on it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the parabolic springs, they put them on, they're like, oh, it's transformative. Now it's, it rides so much better. And, you know, it's, it's so much better in many ways, but what they're not taking into consideration is they're not comparing new springs, new genuine springs to, to new parabolic springs. A rusted 45 year old pair of springs, uh, anything basically is going to be better uh, than the, uh, all welded together and possibly broken, uh, 45 year old springs that you are evaluating so you know i find that the genuine springs they're actually really good quality steel Mm -hmm. and they Mm -hmm. they work really well when they're in good condition but obviously most of them have been neglected and so the parabolic spring seems like a a tremendous upgrade now uh, one of the problems with the parabolic springs is that they have no interleaf friction so the leaves actually don't touch one another along their lengths yeah and uh, so they don't have any inherent dampening qualities like the stock ones do. The stock ones kind of rub together and mm-hmm. that offers some dampening. So the shock absorbers are a really important part of replacing your springs when you switch to parabolic springs. Because otherwise it just, it's like a pogo stick, you know. And do it's, you go with a uh, with a stock uh, or an OEM uh, shock or, or is that an opportunity where you say, okay, because it's parabolics, I really have to go with a higher performance shock because it's going to be doing so much more work than it would be if it was working with a traditional spring that is going to have that dampening friction built in. Yeah, I think that's an, it's an important change that needs to be made if you go to a parabolic spring. Unless now, you have the oiling chisel, that is. The and oiling chisel, your, which I we talked about chisel. before, is one pretty of my great. Favorite. It's, it's my you, favorite. I, I use it for a lot of things, if yeah. I'm being honest. Yeah, just around um, the house. You just know, around the house, in the shower, you yeah. know, you just never know. It's just great for know. those hard-to-reach places. Yeah, crevices, yeah. they're great. Yeah. So anytime you need an oily crevice, it's great. (laughs) So, (laughs) so, uh, you know, the other thing that people don't consider about the parabolic springs is there's not a hundred different part numbers or 300 different part numbers. So they're more homogenous. They don't Mm -hmm. have left-handed, right-handed springs. Basically you have two leaf fronts, um, and then three, I guess you, there are two and three and four leaf rears, depending on how heavy your car is. The four leaf springs, I've never seen a car heavy enough to, be able to utilize the four leaf springs. Maybe an LMTV or something. I don't know yeah. what would. That's a huge amount of uh, spring force. Just tremendous amount of uh, spring, and almost every person that has a 109 wagon regrets getting a four leaf spring because yeah. it just raises the car so high that the drive shaft angle's weird. Yeah, and it's so stiff. Now the other issue is, you know, finding a good parabolic spring. Yeah, most of them are made overseas. The steel quality is. I would say marginal. Yeah. I've had a lot of problems with them sagging very significantly. I mm. uh, put put one set on uh, a car and then took it on a trip to Death Valley and sagged, I think, three inches uh, during during a week trip. And then I've broken several mm. of the two-leaf fronts parabolics of various brands. So I think that steel quality is not especially high um, on the parabolics. Now, one thing that we haven't talked about is the stock Land Rover vehicles that have parabolic springs. Santana is a well-known yep. one. Yep. You know, Santana put parabolic springs on their cars, and those springs tend to be I would say higher quality, but I haven't been able to locate a good source for those. And those um, would have been made in country, right? That's part of the deal, I yes. imagine, for Santana's that had Locally to have been made. Spanish uh, sourced because it yes. uh, to to fall under the the scheme that allowed Santana to do that. Uh, I imagine that would have been one of their parts. True, true, absolutely. And then um, the one hundred and one forward control, I believe, has uh, parabolic springs. Oh, is that on true? Oh, well. you know, I didn't know yeah. that. I didn't yeah. know there's a one hundred and one yeah. forward control for sale. 
not that far away from me right now. You, you, know, you should I buy that car. I know I should, but I would literally have to park my 80-inch inside of it in order to get it into the workshop. It would be a Russian we could figure nesting it out. rover. It'd be fine. Yeah. Now that, the, right. now that the Model T's out of there, you got room for it's that. Okay. Oh, that's, uh, <laughs> yeah, that'll be a great upcoming episode. Uh, the we're going to have, uh, the we're gonna have our, good friend, our good friend Linus on the show to talk about Linus and Ike's Death Race 2000, as I've uh, come to call it. Uh, <laughs> and uh, more, more on that coming up soon. But it is a harrowing journey from uh, Los Angeles to, well, to, to a number of places along the way that we maybe thought were the final destination, but finally ending up back in Eugene, Oregon. Um, almost entirely intact so oh man it was it was a crazy trip but uh yeah we'll we'll have to do a whole episode about uh taking a hundred year old car and an 80 year old motorcycle from los angeles to oregon via the uh the pacific coast road Um, i can't i can't wait to hear i'm actually (laughs) i'm i'm restricting myself from hearing about the trip from linus and ike because i want to be uh, i want to react to it fresh on the show along with all of you uh, and hopefully uh they're able to reattach linus's toe uh on that note tip atop a tech tip uh, for this week, uh, Ike, about something that I've been playing around with is I have a box of old gauges that uh, I've been going through. But the uh, the positives and negatives, if you will, positive and negative senders and gauges. Some gauges um, will, you know, happily report uh, the uh, fuel level in like a, you know, a very straightforward way, uh, you know, very warmly received, um, very positively, if you will. And other senders will just be a total dick about how much fuel you have. Always, you know, the tank is always half empty to them. They're very negative senders. Um, so what's the, uh, what, what are some common things to think about when you're looking at the gauge work in your, uh, in your vintage uh, Land Rover? This is a sort of a confusing topic, and I, I get a lot of requests and questions about, uh, you know, getting my fuel gauge to work. Mm. And, you know, part of it stems from, you know, mixing and matching components that are not interchangeable with one another, and part of it's the availability of parts. Yeah. And so, you know, the positive ground gauges have to be matched with a positive ground sender. Yes. And and when I say positive ground and negative ground, that's used for identification purposes, not necessarily polarity, because right. both gauges and senders will work on both polarities. Mm-hmm. Now, a, a positive ground Land Rover has two wiper motors, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, well, I guess, you know, some of the early ones have one, but you individual one. wiper motors mounted to the windscreen as yep. opposed to a single wiper motor that operates both that both sides. yeah cable drives both of them yeah and two so, little ones that can be hand driven a lot of people don't know that you can unlock it and you can just wipe by hand you don't have to use power yeah and most of the time you can't so you can't, <laughs> yeah, most of the time it doesn't work so uh, you just use the but which is okay because honestly the windshield uh, wiper does nothing anyways I actually have a small squeegee that i just reach out the window and squeegee uh, from the outside that works great so the negative ground trucks, right? They're easily identified by their black dash on the mm-hmm. Series 2A models. Mm-hmm. And they have a black dash as opposed to a body color dash. And then, mm-hmm. of course, the Series 3 models, they're all negative they're ground. All and when you look at the gauges, you'll see a difference in the positive ground gauge versus the negative ground gauge. When you look at the gauge, if the needle has an arrow shape, like a little arrowhead on the end, that's a positive ground gauge. And the negative ground gauge has straight sides on the needle. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty easy to identify them. And the sending units are equally easy to identify. The sending unit for a positive ground gauge has a cast body. 
right? With mm-hmm. little screws that hold yep. a cover plate in place yep. underneath of which is uh, the resistance coil, yep. right? The negative ground gauge is a stamped sheet metal part, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Usually it's cadmium plated um, mm-hmm. and the diesel models have two uh, places for um, leads. They have two terminals mm-hmm. on them for a low fuel sending light. Low fuel send, mm-hmm. low fuel mm-hmm. light. Yeah, right. Um, so that's kind of how you can identify them. Now, for years and years, the the positive ground gauges and you know the sending units have gone bad. People have left you know water in their fuel tanks yeah. or yeah. condensation has happened. The the sending units have deteriorated. So people go and they're like, oh, I need a new sending unit, and they go buy one. And the company selling them sells them whatever's available, which yeah. is a negative ground sending unit. And then it doesn't work because mm-hmm. the re- resistance values in these gauges are different from one another. In fact, they right. read opposite. Yeah. One reads yep. high to low, the other one low to high. Low to high, yeah. And so then they call this company, whoever the company might be, and they say, what should I do? And they say, well, we'll bend it backwards and then it'll work. Well, it mm-hmm. kind of then works uh, you know, it, the range is, is, is working yeah, in the, the, the right place, direction, yeah, but yeah. the actual, you know, uh, resistance values yeah. are still well, off are and correct. Yeah. Doesn't, yeah. doesn't really work. Yeah. So you need to have a positive ground gauge with a positive ground sending unit and vice versa. Yeah. And, uh, that's the key to getting the fuel gauges to work and be happy. Yeah. And, you know, to be fair, uh, and, and this has been my quest for the last couple of weeks, is finding the correct ohm resistance values for all of these different Smiths for like what I, I have, like about 15 years, 15 or 20 years of different Smiths gauges for anything from fuel to uh, to temp to uh, oil pressure, uh, oil pressure being the one that I'm uh, acutely interested in. And yeah, it's usually low ohms means, low ohms are simply ground. The gauge will read nothing, zero off. And the higher that ohm value, Value, the higher the resistance, usually around three or four hundred ohms, is where the gauge hits the top, depending on the sender, depending on the unit. But you know, get, take or leave low ohms empty, high ohms full or hot or whatever. Um, and you can actually you can go on on uh, to Amazon and you can get a little dial selectable um, resistance generator essentially, and you can dial in the number of ohms and run that into your gauge just like it was the uh, just like it was the sender unit. And you can test the gauge really easily. The, the senders themselves are obviously a little more difficult. You've got to put them in boiling water, or you've got to do something to generate that resistance, and then uh, measure it with your multimeter. But it's certainly one of those things where you know before you start replacing senders or gauges or anything is to a first bypass the wiring in the car and hook the gauge directly to the you know take a wire outside and connect it or something because often there's a break or there's something in the, the first thing that you should do when you buy a part for your land rover is to ask the person who's selling you this part what kind of car they drive <laughs> if they if they tell you it's a nissan frontier just hang up on them <laughs> just hang it's up not, on them. it's not the right guy it's not the right it's not person. the right guy that's not the right person yeah that's they're gonna the right sell guy. you something that is is not what you need and that's yeah. often what happens and and why people call they're like i bought the part you know why doesn't this work right and uh you know i would say 10 times out of 10 they've got the wrong mix of pieces and it is super fun and fun. The funny thing is a lot of the gauge work is in the accessories catalogs. They're not in the main parts catalog, especially things like oil pressure, things like that weren't were maybe stock on a U.S. vehicle, but certainly that wasn't the, the, the sort of factory standard. 
that's because you don't have the supplement to the Series 2A parts catalog for the USA market. That has the appropriate has sender in it. That's true. Has I it. don't, I, uh, but I, I love, I'm a huge fan of the accessory catalog. It's like my favorite thing in the world because, Good. man, if it isn't a milking machine, it's some kind of strange side mirror for a particular, you know, Arab market or something. I, really I love, love the, stuff. I love the, I think it's the Swiss market mm-hmm. windshield, no, uh, uh, headlight wipers. Oh, yeah. And they have like a little motor and then the, the, the blade rotates oh, around. Yeah. Uh, it's so cool. It's I so cool. That. And so many people don't know what that is. You see it on, and because a lot of, a lot of, um, I've seen it on Jaguars. I think I've actually seen it on a couple Morgans of that little, that little wiper thing. And it, you, people so just don't dumb. know what it is. And it's, it's, <laughs> it's so, so cool. I want it so bad. It's just the dumbest thing. So, p- headlights don't a, work anyway. So, yeah, the headlight, I mean, the headlights, they're more of a suggestion of <laughs> you're better off with a, with a, with a, you know, a nice mag light out the window or something. But, uh, similar, you know, just, uh, a gaffer's tape, a mag light to your squeegee so that you can, you can squeegee during the day and then mag light and maybe. Maybe even alternate between the two. And so you have both windshield wipe and a uh, headlight. Uh, I love is, it. Which is nice. So speaking of great uh, people of Land Rover Rapport, uh, it is time again for everyone's undisputed favorite segment, matched only maybe by Ike pronounces your Instagram handle, uh, <laughs> famous Land Rover owner of the week. And Ike, uh, who came out of the uh, massive uh, amount of uh, machinery and compute power that we have. We have one of those lotto ball tumblers with names on it. And uh, you <laughs> it know, has a it hole just, in the bottom. So yeah. there's, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's how yeah. it works. And yeah. so if anyone was curious, if any listeners were curious, that's how we come up with these famous Land Rover owners a week. Um, to, this week, it's Richard Hammond of Top oh, Gear fame. Oh, I'm a big Richard Hammond fan. I like him very much. He's uh, what do you like most about him? Well, you know, I think it's uh, I think it's his uh, it's his uh, it's his size and demeanor. Sunny disposition. He is a sunny. He is a positive sender for sure. <laughs> um, let me tell you. And uh, no, he's just he's just a funny guy. I think you know I, everybody. I think everybody who likes cars loves Top Gear, and he has mixed feelings about the Grand Tour. Um, but funny how Amazon could take everything you love and make it just not quite as good. But anyways, um, but just, he is a, a little off. A, a, just not quite right. He is a lover of the Land Rover for sure. He's right. You know, so. I think, and I. I think one of the more popular videos about the new uh, Defender uh, was published by his, uh, and I think it's him and James May. The whole, the whole, the whole gang does this drive tribe. Uh, I think I think Jeremy Clarkson is part of it. Maybe he isn't, but certainly James uh, May and Richard Hammond do this drive tribe thing on uh, YouTube, and he has a great video about the new Defender. He's taking his dog to the uh, uh, to the thing. Funny, I think the whole point of his videos, or or one of the themes of his videos is who's ever with him during the thing if it's his dog if it's his friend or whatever he always leaves them before the end of the video like somewhere (laughs) and kind of drives away which i think is very funny he just recently picked up his new super customized morgan car that has every stitch and you know whatever uh done uh, just so probably Um, disappointed in wait for the cxt oh man right Uh, he'll get one as well you know probably Uh, again if there's only eight though i don't know there's only so many i mean there's a lot more than eight saudi princes that are probably going to buy that thing so he's got to jump in there i think the only things that i know about richard hammond and land rivers is that he did a video maybe Mm -hmm. 10 years ago or something about land rivers and why they're so great and uh, that's a that's a youtube staple he's the narrator he did that and and he has a he has a series one i believe 
That's correct. And uh, what else does he have? Do you know? He does, I believe, have a new Defender. Uh, we're going to call it the 120. I'm going to lead the. I'm going to lead the charge on. It may be called the 110, but it's the 120 to me. Anyways, let's make got, badges. Let's make badges. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I do know a couple people who have LR threes and fours mm-hmm. who have changed the badging to say Discovery three yeah. and four. Right? Well, the, for those of you that don't know, the new Defender 110 is a, like 120 inches long it's a 120. instead of uh, the traditional 110. So it's, it's kind of a, a misnomer. Car. It's a huge car. It's big, a huge car. It's parked next to vehicle. one the other day. Um, and it's a huge car. It's yeah. bigger than my pickup truck and it's a, it's a, it's a 110 Land Rover. Like it's crazy. Anyways, a, a great car though. But, uh, so he's got a blue, he's got the blue, actually that same blue. I had a, I had a stage one. My original stage one was that same blue color, which is very cool. Lovely color. Blue car, white roof, very, I like very traditional Land Rover kind of coloring, which I really am very fond of. Um, and yeah, he has a, he has a series one. He is an 86, uh, inch, uh, series one that is under restoration. Uh, and if you look at his video comparing, the new uh, 110 to the original Land Rover. He, he takes his dog for a, a drive in it, talks about all the great things about it, and sort of concludes that it's the best discovery that Land Rover has ever made, which is, <laughs> I think, maybe very apropos. You know, hey, say what you will, whatever. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, his 86-inch his, his car is very, uh, very cool, uh, very uh, eclectic, somewhat. Uh, I think it's on the very early stage of under-restoration. I would say it's like fresh out of a field somewhere but uh but that's great hopefully he drives well i don't think he drives it because in the picture that he shows this steering uh or i'm sorry the uh, uh the springs on the front are completely disconnected from the chassis it's, it's sitting on them that's normal <laughs> that's normal that's, fine. that's normal it's fine that's the swing away front suspension which yeah. is uh long yeah, travel which was, uh, yeah exactly very long travel. Very long travel. Extremely long travel. <laughs> but yeah, he's a huge he's a huge advocate for the brand, and people, uh, you know, he's he's often seen, uh, uh, you know, amongst the sort of Land Rover events and things like that. New uh, vehicle launches, definitely, and stuff like that. definitely deserves to be in the pantheon of famous Land Rover owners. Absolutely. Of the week. When we finally get that uh, concrete wall uh, erected outside of uh, Ike's home that uh, lists all of the famous uh, Land Rover we're owners, gonna, we're gonna have a we're gonna have a bronze bust of everyone. Oh, I think that's really, I think that's what it deserves, <laughs> you know, out in the middle of the woods uh, that people can come. People will come from miles around to Eugene, Oregon after they visited that last Blockbuster video. Where is that? Bend. Bend, Oregon. Yeah. yeah. So then when you're there for the for the Blockbuster visit, why not come to the middle of the woods and visit the famous Land Rover Armor of the Week? Um, Other way around. People are going to come for the Land Rover Armor of the Week, right, and then they're going to be like, I'm already here. I'll go to the Blockbuster. Right I better go to the... I better, I better spend the night in the this Blockbuster, blockbuster video. <laughs> you can, can rent it out too. on Airbnb. You yeah, can. maybe we should start renting the the uh, Pangolin four x four shop overnight. Ooh, you know, great set the idea. door, set one of the dormobiles up inside. Can't see what could possibly go wrong with no, that. No, it's gonna. It's all. It's all good. It's uh, it's all. You know, it's just, uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's only a little spooky and uh, just partially haunted. But uh, don't worry, the haunting won't get to you. The smell will get there first. So. Oh, brutal! Uh, all right, yeah. It's rough, all right. On that rough. note. On that note, Ike, it has been uh, a pleasure as always. And we need to come up with like a with like the all right Ike of ending the show. 
I don't know what that's You're doing it. You're in the middle of it. <laughs> this is it. It's a four and a half minute long ramble that ends the show. A traditional, yeah. the traditional four and a half minute long ramble. Well, Ike, it has been a pleasure. Uh, you know, make sure you uh, tune in to Ike's uh, other uh, podcast, the International uh, CXT uh, Owners of America uh, podcast. Uh, well, thank you for your time as always, Stephen. Keep the rubber side down. Looking forward to next week. All right, sir. Cheers for now. Take care. Powered Hour is produced by me, Steve Barris, and Ike Goss. Consider supporting the show through our Patreon, and when you do, you'll be given access to exclusive content and Underpowered Hour merch. Want even more Underpowered Hour? Check out our Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. 